0: Part Two of the Perfect Wagnerite. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. The Perfect Wagnerite A Commentary on the Niblung's Ring by George Bernard Shaw. Part Two Wagner as Revolutionist before leaving this explanation of the rhine gold i must have a word or two about it with the reader it is the least popular of the sections of the ring the reason is that its dramatic moments lie quite outside the consciousness of people whose joys and sorrows are all domestic and personal and whose religions and political ideas are purely conventional and superstitious to them it is a struggle between half a dozen fairy-tale personages for a ring involving hours of scolding and cheating and one long scene in a dark gruesome mine with gloomy ugly music and not a glimpse of a handsome young man or pretty woman only those of wider consciousness can follow it breathlessly seeing in it the whole tragedy of human history and the whole horror of the dilemmas from which the world is shrinking today. At Bayreuth I have seen a party of English tourists, after enduring agonies of boredom from Alberich, rise in the middle of the third scene, and almost force their way out of the dark theatre into the sunlit pine-wood without. And I have seen people who were deeply affected by the scene, driven almost beside themselves by this disturbance. But it was a very natural thing for the unfortunate tourists to do since in this rheingold prologue there is no interval between the acts for escape roughly speaking people who have no general ideas no touch of the concern of the philosopher and statesman for the race cannot enjoy the rheingold as a drama they may find compensations in some exceedingly pretty music at times even grand and glorious which will enable them to escape occasionally from the struggle between aberich and wotan but if their capacity for music should be as limited as their comprehension of the world they had better stay away and now attentive reader we have reached the point at which some foolish person is sure to interrupt us by declaring that the rheingold is what they call a work of art pure and simple and that wagner never dreamt of shareholders tall hats white-lead factories and industrial and political questions looked at from the socialistic and humanitarian points of view we need not discuss these impertinences it is easier to silence them with the facts of wagner's life in eighteen forty three he obtained the position of conductor of the opera at dresden at a salary of two twenty five a year with a pension this was a first-rate permanent appointment in the service of the saxon state carrying an assured professional position and livelihood with it. In 1848, the year of revolutions, the discontented middle class, unable to rouse the church and state governments of the day from their bondage to custom, caste, and law by appeals to morality or constitutional agitation for liberal reforms, made common cause with the starving wage-worker class, and resorted to armed rebellion, which reached Dresden in 1849. Had Wagner been the mere musical epicure and political mugwump that the term artist seems to suggest to so many critics and amateurs—that is, a creature in their own lazy likeness—he need have taken no more part in the political struggles of his day than Bishop took in the English reform agitation of 1832, or Sterndale Bennett in the Chartist or free-trade movements. What he did do was first to make a desperate appeal to the king to cast off his bonds and answer the need of the time for taking true kingship on himself and leading his people to the redress of their intolerable wrongs, fancy the poor monarch's feelings, and then, when the crash came, to take his side with the right and the poor against the rich and the wrong. When the insurrection was defeated, Three leaders of it were especially marked down for vengeance—August Ruckel, an old friend of Wagner's, to whom he wrote a well-known series of letters, Michael Bakunin, afterwards a famous apostle of revolutionary anarchism, and Wagner himself. Wagner escaped to Switzerland. Ruckel and Bakunin suffered long terms of imprisonment. Wagner was, of course, utterly ruined, pecuniarily and socially to his own intense relief and satisfaction, and his exile lasted twelve years. His first idea was to get his Tannhäuser produced in Paris. With the notion of explaining himself to the Parisians, he wrote a pamphlet entitled Art and Revolution, a glance through which will show how thoroughly the socialistic side of the revolution had his sympathy and how completely he had got free from the influence of the established churches of his day for three years he kept pouring forth pamphlets some of them elaborate treatises in size and intellectual rank but still essentially the pamphlets and manifestos of a born agitator on social evolution religion life art and the influence of riches in eighteen fifty three the poem of the ring was privately printed and in 1854, five years after the Dresden insurrection, the Rheingold score was completed to the last drum-tap. These facts are on official record in Germany, where the proclamation, summing up Wagner as a politically dangerous person, may be consulted to this day. The pamphlets are now accessible to English readers in the translation of Mr. Ashton Ellis. This being so, any person who having perhaps heard that i am a socialist attempts to persuade you that my interpretation of the rhine gold is only my socialism read into the works of a dilettantist who borrowed an idle tale from an old saga to make an opera book with may safely be dismissed from your consideration as an ignoramus if you are now satisfied that the rhine gold is an allegory do not forget that an allegory is never quite consistent except when it is written by someone without dramatic faculty, in which case it is unreadable. There is only one way of dramatizing an idea, and that is by putting on the stage a human being possessed by that idea, yet none the less a human being with all the human impulses which make him akin and therefore interesting to us. Bunyan, in his Pilgrim's Progress, does not, like his unread imitators, attempt to personify Christianity and valor. He dramatizes for you the life of the Christian and the valiant man. Just so, though I have shown that Wotan is Godhead and kingship, and Loki logic and imagination without living will, brain without heart, to put it vulgarly, Yet, in the drama, Wotan is a religiously moral man, and Loki a witty, ingenious, imaginative, and cynical one. As to Fricka, who stands for state law, she does not assume her allegorical character in the Rheingold at all, but is simply Wotan's wife and Freya's sister. Nay, she contradicts her allegorical self by conniving at all Wotan's rogueries—that, of course, is just what state law would do, but we must not save the credit of the allegory by a quip. Not until she reappears in the next play, The Valkyries, does her function in the allegorical scheme become plain. One preconception will bewilder the spectator hopelessly, unless he has been warned against it, or is naturally free from it. In the old-fashioned orders of creation. The supernatural personages are invariably conceived as greater than man for good or evil in the modern humanitarian order as adopted by wagner man is the highest in the rheingold it is pretended that there are as yet no men on the earth there are dwarfs giants and gods the danger is that you will jump to the conclusion that the gods at least are a higher order than the human order On the contrary, the world is waiting for men to redeem it from the lame and cramped government of the gods. Once grasp that, and the allegory becomes simple enough. Really, of course, the dwarfs, giants, and gods are dramatizations of the three main orders of men. To wit, the instinctive, predatory, lustful, greedy people, the patient, toiling, stupid, respectful, money-worshipping people. And the intellectual, moral, talented people who devise and administer states and churches. History shows us only one order higher than the highest of these, namely, the order of heroes. Now it is quite clear, though you have perhaps never thought of it, that if the next generation of Englishmen consisted wholly of Julius Caesars, all our political, ecclesiastical, and moral institutions would vanish and the less perishable of their appurtenances be classed with stonehenge and the cromlechs and round towers as inexplicable relics of a bygone social order julius caesars would no more trouble themselves about such contrivances as our codes and churches than a fellow of the royal society will touch his hat to the squire and listen to the village curate's sermons This is precisely what must happen some day, if life continues thrusting towards higher and higher organization as it has hitherto done. As most of our English professional men are to Australian bushmen, so we must suppose will the average man of some future day be to Julius Caesar. Let any man of middle age pondering this prospect, consider what has happened within a single generation to the articles of faith his father regard as eternal, nay, to the very scepticisms and blasphemies of his youth, Bishop Colonzo's criticism of the Pentateuch, for example, and he will begin to realize how much of our barbarous theology and law the man of the future will do without. Bakunin, the Dresden revolutionary leader with whom Wagner went out in eighteen forty nine, put forward later on a program often quoted with foolish horror for the abolition of all institutions religious, political, juridical, financial, legal, academic, and so on, so as to leave the will of man free to find its own way. All the loftiest spirits of that time were burning to raise man up, to give him self respect to shake him out of his habit of groveling before the ideals created by his own imagination, of attributing the good that sprang from the ceaseless energy of the life within himself to some superior power in the clouds, and of making a fetish of self-sacrifice to justify his own cowardice. Farther on in the ring we shall see the hero arrive and make an end of dwarfs, giants, and gods. Meanwhile let us not forget that godhood means to wagner infirmity and compromise and manhood strength and integrity above all we must understand for it is the key to much that we are to see that the god since his desire is toward a higher and fuller life must long in his inmost soul for the advent of that greater power whose first work though this he does not see as yet Must be his own undoing. In the midst of all these far-reaching ideas, it is amusing to find Wagner still full of his ingrained theatrical professionalism and introducing effects which now seem old-fashioned and stagey with as much energy and earnestness as if they were his loftiest inspirations. When Wotan wrests the ring from Alberich, the dwarf delivers a lurid and blood-curdling stage curse calling down on its every future possessor care fear and death the musical phrase accompanying this outburst was a veritable harmonic and melodic bogey to mid-century ears though time has now robbed it of its terrors it sounds again when fafner slays Fasolt, and on every subsequent occasion when the ring brings death to its holder This episode must justify itself purely as a piece of staged sensualism. On deeper ground it is superfluous and confusing, as the ruin, to which the pursuit of riches leads, needs no curse to explain it. Nor is there any sense of investing Alberich with providential powers in the matter. End of Part 2